from Washington, D.C. and around the world. This is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. The Pentagon will require all military service personnel to get the COVID-19 vaccine. The FDA gave full approval to the Pfizer vaccine following its emergency use authorization in December. The Pentagon's mandate will require 1.3 million military members to be vaccinated. President Biden says he may extend the August 31st deadline to remove U.S. troops from Afghanistan. The extension would facilitate more evacuations despite the Taliban announcing a, quote, red line for U.S. troop withdrawal by September 1st. The White House says it hopes not to draw out the process. The U.S. has removed 48,000 troops since the withdrawal began earlier this month. The White House says the federal government will support areas devastated by Tropical Storm Henri. Biden says he approved emergency declarations for the hardest-hit states. The White House plans to pay for repairs from storm damage and other aid. The White House says agencies must start testing unvaccinated employees and contractors for COVID-19 who work on site in agencies. Workers must take tests at least once a week. Jim Eisenman is former executive director and general counsel for the Merit Systems Protection Board. He's now partner at Alden Law Group. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So if agencies have to test all those on-site employees once a week, every week, what will that look like logistically? I think it might be uh, very difficult logistically. Now, one clarification is that they have to actually be coming to the work site. If they're not actually coming to the work site, it doesn't actually apply to them in terms of testing. But I think it logistically could be very difficult. Uh, and I think particularly for smaller agencies that don't have as many resources as say the larger ones. Okay, so then how should an agency decide if it should go in-house testing, go through an on-site contractor, maybe have an on-site or an off-site clinic handle it? I think there are a number of, uh, number of considerations, and I think it depends, again, on the size of the agency and the resources they have. Smaller federal agencies are not going to have the resources as large ones, so they may want to contract uh, for off-site testing, um, it's just going to be probably logistically easier uh, unless they can uh, work with another federal agency. But again, they'll be paying money out of their own uh, budgets for this. I was going to ask you about who's paying for, for all this testing. It, it can't be cheap. No, it can't be. But I, I think given the, the mandate and the requirements from the, uh, the Biden administration regarding this, I think it's important that it's done. Um, but it's something that the agencies will have to, a burden the agencies will have to bear financially. So let's look at a scenario, Jim. An employee comes into work and tests positive for COVID. What does an agency do? Well, first of all, I think this is no different than any other situation throughout the pandemic. If someone tests positive, uh, they should, first of all, if they're at work, they should isolate themselves and then leave as soon as they can they test positive, they should not be coming to the office at all until uh, until they have a negative COVID test and all the other protocols have been met that have been set by the administration and the CDC. Okay, well, Jim, here's another scenario. An employee comes into work and refuses to take the test. How should a manager respond to that? 
manager should, according to the, the guidance that was issued by the administration, is they should talk with human resources and uh, other individuals within the agency about what to do. But generally speaking, if someone refuses to comply with a lawful order, uh, they can be disciplined for insubordination or failure to follow an order. And they can be barred from the workplace and while uh, disciplinary uh, measures are considered. Can they lose their job? I think it's in theory possible, uh, though it depends on a number of factors, including whether the individual themselves has, the individual themselves has been disciplined before and for what reasons. Someone who is you know, worked for a particular agency for 20, 25 years, and this is their first instance of, say, misconduct, I think it's unlikely that uh, someone should be fired under those circumstances. But again, context is everything. We don't know if that person uh, might expose others to COVID or other, uh, well, to COVID. You know, I wonder, Jim, if any of the agencies have started testing, if we know of any lessons learned or any experiences that they might ha be having. Yeah, from what I'm hearing, this is still a lot of work that's happening at the agencies, particularly smaller agencies, that uh, you've got, first of all, your COVID councils or, or whatever their name is, um, they've got to work in putting together this program. That's what's required. And I think it's still taking some time. I mean, these, the, these procedure just kind of came out toward the end of July and the new updated guidance came out uh, about a week ago. So I think managers, leaders within agencies are still grappling with how to deal with this. And I'm, what sure, it, I'm sure there's quite a lot of meetings going on. What, it, what are you recommending besides having a lot of meetings as far as steps that they need to put in place to get this done? I think, I think, first of all, it's important to communicate with, uh, with the staff, with the agency, whether that's at an agency-wide level or within particular offices about what is happening, what is not happening. So I think many times what employees find uh, disconcerting um, is the lack of information. So I think it's important that, that leaders communicate about what they're doing to implement the program, this COVID testing protocol, and what is and what is not going to happen. Uh, rumors, I'm sure, will be rampant uh, as, as this goes on. So it's important to communicate about that. Do you think this will incentivize employees to get vac vaccinated? Uh, you know, I'm not sure. Uh, I think that it probably will have some people uh, feeling that they should get vaccinated. I think the fact that those who are not fully vaccinated or refuse to uh, attest to being fully vaccinated. Uh, if they want to return to work and resume some sense of normalcy without a mask, without the physical distancing, without the testing, I think sometimes, I think those individuals may. I think there's others that it won't make a difference. And just to be clear, Jim, uh, employees will get paid time off to go and get tested. Isn't that correct? Or even to go get vaccinated? That's correct, both, yes. All right. Well, Jim, thanks so much for um, talking to us about this, and we'll, we'll continue to watch it as things start to roll out. Thank you very much. Coming up next, ramping up diversity, equity, and inclusion goals at agencies. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the implications of a contracting boost for disadvantaged businesses. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Small Business Administration is taking steps to ensure agencies hit the White House's equity goals. President Biden says he wants to increase the percentage of federal contracting dollars spent on small, disadvantaged businesses. Joe Jordan is CEO at Actuparo. He's former administrator of federal procurement policy. Joe, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's great to be here. So what percent of government contracts are currently reserved for small and minority-owned businesses, and, and what, is, uh, what are the president's stated goals? Sure. So 23% uh, of all federal contracting dollars are intended to go to small businesses. Uh, over the last about decade and a half, the government's done a great job increasing that. And last year, um, it was about 26% of the dollars. And for small disadvantaged businesses, which uh, is the closest proxy the federal government has to a minority-owned business. The goal is 5% of contracting dollars. The actual performance has been a little over 10%, so about double the goal in recent years. Or last year, that meant about $60 billion in federal prime contract awards went to these small disadvantaged businesses. And what President Biden is saying is in an effort to increase the uh, economic and financial outcomes in uh, minority communities and other underserved communities, he'd like to see that 10 plus percent performance uh, increased by 50%, so up to 15%, uh, which would well, drive about another $100 billion to uh, small disadvantaged businesses over the next five years. Joe, do you think that number is high enough? Well, you know, my thing is, I think all of the small business uh, and socioeconomic small business programs are really great, um, SDB included. I think uh, the tricky part is how you execute a, a admittedly laudable goal, like getting more dollars in the hands of these underserved communities. And so, um, you know, as long as any increase to small disadvantaged businesses doesn't come out of the service disabled veteran owned small business program, which um, you know is about right now about half the dollar size of SDBs or the women owned small business program or the hub zone program, then sure. Um, but in reality, uh, experience has said that if you're really focused on one of those small business programs and not all of them in parity with each other, um, it, it can be a little bit of a crabs in a bucket scenario and people are pulling each other down and um, you know, we really want to prevent that. Well, you mentioned that the challenge is going to be in the execution. How should agencies execute? What's the best way to go about doing this in the right way? Well, it will be a challenge for agencies because the reality is um, while there are a number of softer methods to increase minority business participation, such as training and education and entrepreneurial development that brings more of uh, it brings more folks from these underserved communities into a business ownership situation where they can run companies and compete for federal contracts. Um, in terms of really kind of hitting the goal, the one way is the 8A program, which is administered by the Small Business Administration and allows agencies to issue sole source contracts, so no bid contracts, as long as they're below certain thresholds. Um, and, and that threshold for an individual business is about $4 million. And so what agencies are more likely to do is increasingly use 
tribally owned entities and Alaska Native corporations who have a much higher sole source sole source threshold. And, um, you know, that's not exactly what the administration is trying to do here. And so it will be a challenge for agencies. And I really look forward to seeing how SBA and, and OMB promulgate policies and regulations that give them more tools to achieve this goal. And what about on the other side? What about, you know, minority and disadvantaged businesses? What do they need to do to kind of get spun up and take advantage of this opportunity? Yeah, that's a great question. A big piece of kind of the puzzle, I think. Um, you know, there are a number of absolutely free resources that minority business owners can take advantage of through the SBA and um, local affiliates that allow them to get the counseling, training, education, et cetera, um, to put them in a position to successfully start, run, um, and uh, compete for contracts through their business. Um, you know, the other thing is this program is about business ownership not employees so you know as long as it's owned and controlled by a qualified person then all the dollars that flow to them through federal contracts count as going kind of to minority owned businesses um even though many slash the majority slash all of the employees may not um be in that socioeconomic group and so that's another part of it is you know for individuals to avail themselves of the economic programs that sba and other agencies like commerce offer to help them with training and education and put them in a position for maybe they're not ready to run a uh, federal contractor, but they can get a high paying job at one of these businesses that receive these contracts. Is there a way, um, Joe, and you know, we've got less than a minute. Is there a way that you recommend agencies prioritize maybe one contract or another? Is, is there any recommendation in that sense? Absolutely. I think that all of these programs should be viewed in parity with each other. And when an agency has a need to go to the private sector to fulfill a piece of their agency's mission, they first look at small businesses. There more often than not will be capability and capacity within the small business community. They look at the various uh, socioeconomic programs and they pick the one that's right for that agency need and everyone will get a great outcome. All right, well, Joe, thanks very much for coming on the program. Nice talking to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Up next, adopting and fostering children for military personnel. Straight ahead on Government Matters, communicating the benefits and services across the Defense Department. You can find every episode of our show and subscribe to our podcast at govmatters.tv. I'll be right back. Out of 1.3 million active duty service members, over 2,000 families foster or adopt children. But the Government Accountability Office says military families are not aware of benefits they can receive from DOD's enrollment program. Kathy Laren is Director of Education and Workforce and Income Security Issues at GAO. Kathy, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Why did the GAO do this report? What was the, what was the reasoning? Well, um, we were asked to do this report, um, I think because um, military families had expressed some frustration and challenges that they faced both when they were fostering children and trying to adopt children while also serving in the military. And what were those challenges that they were um, dealing with? 
Uh, you know, military families have a very mobile lifestyle. Uh, they're subject to moves sometimes with very little notice. Um, and this creates challenges when they want to foster or adopt because uh, the process can be interrupted sort of midstream. Um, so uh, there are services and um, supports available to these families, but they don't always know what those services and supports are. And give me an idea, Kathy, of what are the, the benefits and, and things that they can avail themselves of? Well, uh, state and local governments, as well as the Department of Defense, offer services and benefits to families trying to foster and adopt. Uh, a couple of examples of benefits that the Department of Defense offers are um, paid leave for families that are trying to adopt, um, financial reimbursement for some adoption assistance, and um, consultation. Uh, they have consultants who will help them navigate the process and overcome some of the barriers. Are there particular regulations that they need to be aware of when trying to enroll like adopted or fostered children into the military benefit system? Yeah, that's a really great question. You know, the military benefit system is a huge support for military families to improve their quality of life. And it gives families, family members access to things like um, commissaries, to recreation centers, uh, athletic programs, after school programs for kids. So it's a really important benefit, but some families um, said, told us that they had a hard time enrolling their foster children and their adoptive children. And our analysis uh, determined that this was because the guidance that um, DOD personnel are using to help enroll families is not consistent with DOD regulations that are clear that um, foster kids and adoptive kids are eligible for these benefits. I wonder if there's a difference, Kathy, between the, the process for military families as opposed to the general public or for civilians. You know, the process is very similar, um, but as I said, uh, military families uh, face additional challenges um, because, for example, um, state and local child welfare agencies handle most uh, foster placements and adoptions through the foster system, and the um, process is not transferable from state to state. So if a family moves from one state to another state mid-process, they have to start over again. That's a, a big difference between um, the military and families that are not moving around. I wonder if you looked at overseas adoptions, because if a military family is stationed overseas and they want to adopt from that country, is that possible? Does that happen? Um, it does, you know, we really didn't focus on that, but I think some of the regulations and benefits that we looked at that are part of the Department of Defense, um, you know, and the challenges with those would apply whether you're adopting internationally or domestically. But we really looked at the domestic uh, fostering and adopting. And what are the report's recommendations then for improving the benefit system, the communication of those benefits? So we made three recommendations in the report. One was uh, for the department to make sure that the guidance that they're using is consistent with their regulations to clear up any confusion about who is eligible for benefits. Um, we also suggested that they consolidate 
information about the services and supports available to foster and adopted uh, families in one place so that families have easier access to information about what their benefits are. And then finally, we recommended that um, the department um, promote the um, information um, and ensure that their personnel are aware of the services and benefits available so that they can be telling families about them. All right. Well, Kathy, thanks very much for telling us this, and hopefully we can have some of these military families avail themselves of the, the benefits available. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you think of the show. Follow us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. You can get the latest updates and behind-the-scenes look at our program. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Catherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.